0: Steiger grew out of a passion to reach young people who would not walk into a church. What started out as a dynamic ministry reaching young people of Amsterdam has grown into a worldwide mission organization called to reach and disciple the global youth culture for Jesus. The global youth culture is the largest culture to ever exist. They're more connected, but never more alone. Always seeking pleasure, never satisfied. A worldwide suicide epidemic, sexually broken and confused, raised on pornography, taught there's no absolute truth, only preference. This global generation is overwhelmed with loneliness, anxiety, and depression, and they are not looking to the church for answers because they believe it to be irrelevant to their lives. Many are apathetic, cynical, and even hostile to the gospel. These are our friends, our sons, and our daughters. How do we communicate the gospel to these people who have such a negative view of God? How can we show them the love of Jesus in a language they'll understand? Steiger mobilizes followers of Jesus to reach young people who would not walk into a church. We are active in over 100 cities around the globe and bridge the gap between the church and the global youth culture by establishing Steiger City teams. A Steiger City team is a catalytic force for engaging secularized culture with four key objectives. One... We equip and unify the local church to effectively reach young people of their communities. Two, we raise up the next generation of Christian leaders and influencers. Three, we transform the culture by being relationally present and engaging in bold, creative evangelism in the secular scene. And four, we multiply the impact by fostering a culture of disciples who make disciples Who make disciples? Thousands of lives are being transformed all over the world by the power of the gospel. Jesus said there is a great harvest and few workers. Will you join us as we bring the love of Jesus to the global youth culture?
1: Good morning. It's great to be here. My name is Ben Pierce. Um, from what I understand, my dad, David Pierce, spoke about a year ago, and I, from what I heard, it went pretty well, so I have some big shoes to fill. Um, with this whole pandemic, I have not been doing a lot of speaking like this, and so to see real people in person, it's hard to believe. So so nice to be here and to be able to do this, and hopefully our world will return to some normalcy, and this will become uh, more normal again, and so that's, that's the hope and prayer Uh, I've been full-time with Steiger, I I say for over 10 years, but it's kind of a misnomer because it's the family business. Uh, I was born into this, and so whether I had a choice or not, I'm not sure. Uh, But either way, I'm here, uh, and I am very passionate about the mission of Steiger. I really believe that our world is desperate to hear about Jesus uh, but, but in many ways, we often fail to communicate in a language that they understand, and so we are so excited uh, to be able to go to where they are and lift up the name of Jesus to them in a way that, that they connect with uh, and then in a way that they ultimately respond. Um, as the video suggests, we, we reach what we call the global youth culture, and this is just a fancy way of saying young people outside of the church. You know, it's roughly 17 to 35 in every major urban center all over the world, They're connected by the way that they look, by the way that they dress, by the the social media that they're using, the content that they're consuming, the video games that they're playing. You know, and I have the privilege of going all over the world, and it's kind of remarkable how similar young people are today. They're truly global, Uh, but it's not just superficial things like fashion and social media. It's also the way that they look at the world and as the video suggested, young people today, they see, they see religion as an outdated tradition of the past, something that has no relevance to their daily lives. And they also see truth as just a preference. We live in this relativistic culture now where you can have your truth and I can have my truth, but there's nothing to arbitrate between us. And it is in this context that young people just aren't looking to the church for answers anymore. And I think we need to be like Jesus and go to them and lift up the name of Jesus in a way that they can understand. And so that's what Steiger is passionate about. My role in the mission, I do many different things, but really it boils down to evangelism and challenging others to evangelism. That's really my passion. Uh, And so I'm the creative director of a band called No Longer Music that goes all over the world pre-pandemic and lifts up the name of Jesus in, in city squares and festivals in nightclubs, in places where young people are. Uh, I'm also uh, the host of a podcast called Provoke and Inspire. And if you really resonate with what I have to say, with what you heard from David, uh, this is a real good resource for you. Um, We release about two to three episodes a week. And our whole heart is how can we challenge ourselves and others, those listening, to be radical for Jesus in their daily life outside of the church out there where, where people are, where they need to hear about Jesus. How, how can we be faithful? How can we be fruitful? And we get to talk to some of the, the biggest influencers and, and thought leaders and artists and pastors from throughout the Christian world. I mean, we recently had Tim Keller on. Uh, we're going to be having an episode coming out soon with, with Professor uh, John Lennox. We have some really heavy hitters who share with us how how they uh, are are seeing fruit in their lives outside of the church. And so I'd really recommend that you check that out. Uh, It's anywhere and everywhere that podcasts are, so just search that, subscribe. Uh, The other thing is we teach a class called Jesus in the Secular World. Uh, And again, this is our passion to help inspire and and encourage the church to go outside of the church and, and to reach people. Because we have a culture that's walking away from God and we need to be out there telling people. Uh, in this class, uh, we're actually going to be having here uh, next, I think it's on Saturday at this campus. Uh, normally it's taught over five days, but it's just a one day uh, Jesus in the secular world class that my brother is going to be teaching. Uh, so you'll get the full family experience. Uh, and I really do think you'll be challenged by it. Because every person in this room Every single one of you, you have colleagues and sons and daughters and people that you live by and work with who are not following Jesus, who are far away from him. And I know that it's on your heart that that this burdens you and you want to know, how can I reach them? And hopefully this class can be an encouragement for you. So I'd consider checking that out. Uh, And then finally, I did write a book that's based on the class called Jesus in the Secular World. We only brought like eight of them. Um, so depending on how the speaking goes, they might be in demand or not. I don't know. Um, but either way, you might want to grab one fairly quick. We usually ask for a $10 donation. Uh, if this is a barrier for you, just go ahead and grab one. And we'll bring more uh, at the class on Saturday as an, an extra incentive for you to go. You know, as we were preparing to teach this class this Jesus in the secular world class, we were asking, what is it that we can share? You know, my brother and I, we grew up in Amsterdam where my parents' mission started. And we had this incredible privilege of seeing God's power at work outside of the church all the time. This was a normal part of our growing up experience. And this was just incredible to see faith in action in this way. And so as we were preparing for this class, we were saying, God, what is it that we can share from our lives And as we were praying, we felt led to the story of Nehemiah. If you're not familiar, Nehemiah is, of course, a book in the Old Testament, but it's an incredible narrative of of, of someone who is confronted by a desperate situation and then going on to doing something amazing about it. It's an incredible example, and I think there's so much that we can learn. And, and, And in many ways, I think there's so much that we can relate to. Nehemiah really is not so unlike us. You see, he had a great job, but he was in a foreign nation. The world around him was not honoring God. The world around him was not following God. And, and many of us probably feel that way, right? We live in a, in a country, in a time where things are going bad pretty fast. But like Nehemiah, maybe things are pretty good for you. Maybe you have a decent job. Maybe you're pretty secure, pretty safe, pretty comfortable, even though the state of the world around you is in ruin. But you see, Nehemiah has an encounter that ruins him for ordinary living. He can't go on doing what he did before. Nehemiah has some relatives come and visit him, and and what they tell him changes everything. It says that they tell him that Jerusalem and his people and the walls of the city were in ruins that things were in collapse, that the the name of God was being blasphemed. And this really wrecks Nehemiah. It says in Nehemiah 1.4, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When Nehemiah is confronted with his desperate situation, he doesn't just have a momentary reaction or some academic response. Oh, that's, that's terrible. Someone should do something about that. When Nehemiah hears about Jerusalem and about the wall, it ruins him. He has this deep, guttural, emotional response. He wept. And I, I don't know the last time when you wept or when I wept. And I'm not talking about in response to a personal tragedy or crisis. That's understandable. I'm talking about weeping because of the reality of the state of the world around us because of the brokenness, because of all the lost people right outside of these walls. When is the last time this has caused you deep personal anguish? Nehemiah weeps, and then it says he fasted and prayed. And though it says days here, historians estimate this was really a matter of months. This wasn't some fleeting response. You know, this, this momentary conviction, then he forgot about it later that day. This deep anguish led him to pray in a desperate way to fast. Why? You see, Nehemiah was showing us something. He was demonstrating something. You see, Nehemiah looked at the state of Jerusalem, of the wall, and he didn't think, oh, yeah, okay, I think I got it. You know, I should just get a few people together and we'll devise a five-step plan and we'll go out and rebuild that wall. He looked at the situation and said, I have nothing. I do not have enough. I am inadequate. I am woefully inadequate. And likewise, we do not have enough. It's not as though we have the solutions to the problems of the world around us. If we could just compile our resources. He was demonstrating that God and only God's power would make a difference. He was was recognizing that, God, you've got to go with me. You've got to do it. If you don't do it, I have no hope. You know, such a common mistake we make is to think a great idea or the perfect strategy or the perfect approach, that'll make the difference. You know, in business, this makes sense. We try to replicate what's successful, but I think we do this in the church too. We want to know what sermons are working. We want to know what music is reaching people. We want to know what ministries are fruitful, and we think if we can just emulate that, If we can just figure out what's working for them, maybe that will work for us. But the truth is, moves of God are not about strategy or method or approach. Moves of God happen when we pray. When we start to take prayer seriously. As the video mentioned, and as I said, my parents' ministry began in the 80s in Amsterdam. And they went there to reach people who were far from God. And they were doing everything they could, but they were not being effective. They were not seeing the fruit they wanted to. And they were frustrated. And in in the midst of all of their busyness, they felt like God said, just stop. Stop with all the activities. Stop with all the programs and all the strategies and just seek me. And so that's what they did. For a couple of years, they would just pray intensely They would develop relationships and then just pray intensely and they would go outside of the city into the forest in Amsterdam and they would pray until the sun would come up. And I'm telling you, that is when everything changed. That is when God began to give them his plan, when he began to pour out his power. They started this Bible study on a boat that became this hub for unreached people to come and hear about Jesus. They started this band called No Longer Music and now... We have a worldwide missions organization in over 13 cities around the world, hundreds of of people, all of this impact. Why? Because God rewards those who seek him with a desperate heart. This births something in the DNA of Steiger that continues to this day. And that is that if God takes his hand off of us, we are dead. If God is not with us, we have nothing we need to seek God with a desperate heart fast-forwarding this to my context my parents moved us from New Ze- uh, from Amsterdam to New Zealand when i was around 10 years old and despite its incredible natural beauty New Zealand is a very dark place it's very cynical it's very secular it's very post-god and in high school it was very rough I knew no one in my entire grade who followed Jesus. And if they did, they didn't advertise it. This was a really difficult environment to grow up in. And my parents, recognizing this, they started a Bible study for my brother and I and our friends. And if you remember my dad, he's kind of intense, and we're kind of intense, and we all are kind of intense around here. And, and so this Bible study took on that culture. This wasn't just an excuse to hang out. We would seek God desperately as high school students. And we'd go out into the beautiful New Zealand forests and wilderness and we would pray until the sun would come up. And it's funny, when you start to see God in this way, he starts to change your priorities. It's no longer okay to just have your little church thing, to have your little compartmentalized faith. God starts to do something in your heart. He starts to burden you for the world around you and he did that for us and we started to feel his heart for our friends. And I remember one particular prayer time out in the forest, one of the guys in our group stood up and he said, you know, I feel like God wants to give us a tent and and we should do these outreaches and, and, and all of our friends are gonna come to Jesus. And we agreed with him and we said, yes, God, do this. Wouldn't that be awesome? And a couple of months later, we built this big stage. We bought this big tent and every single month for well over two years, we would do these big outreach events. Hundreds of kids coming, people giving their lives to Jesus, miraculous things happening. On one particular day when when the event was happening, this guy was driving by the tent. He had no idea what was going on inside, but he told us later that he felt as if a magnet pulled him into the parking lot. So he pulls into the parking lot and he stumbles into the tent and David, my dad, was preaching and he gave his life to Jesus right there and then. And this kind of thing was happening all the time. We were told later that this was likely the most effective evangelism that that part of New Zealand has ever had. Why? Did we stumble on the perfect idea? Was this so revolutionary doing events in in this way? Of course not. Did we have unique talent, right place, right time, perfect synergy group of kids? No. God moved in this way because a group of high school students started to seek him with a desperate heart. You know, and I'll tell this story. Now, likely this won't happen now, but I'll tell this story and invariably someone will come up to me and say, tents, I knew it. I've been telling anyone that would listen that if we would just get a tent, then we'd reach everybody. And I'm like, what? That's not the point. It's not about tents. It's not about music. It's not about boats. It's not about looking a certain way or having all the answers. It's about God's power. And God rewards those who seek him with a desperate heart says in Hebrews 11:6 and without faith it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him so much of our ministry efforts and our programs and our outreaches are ineffective and powerless because we do not take prayer seriously there was a missionary in the early 1900s Elizabeth Elliot who wrote this great article on prayer. I just want to read a few paragraphs for you. She wrote this, People who ski happen to enjoy skiing. They have time for it and can afford it and are good at it. I have found that I treat prayer as though it were a sport like skiing. Something I do if I like it. Something you do in your spare time. Something you do if you can afford the trouble. Something you do if you're good at it. Otherwise, most of the time you do without it. And when you get in a pinch, you try it or call on an expert. But prayer is not sport, it is work. Seldom do we consider the nature of our opponent, and that is to his advantage. When we do recognize him for what he is, however, we have an inkling as to why prayer is never easy. It is the weapon that the unseen power dreads most. And if he can get us to treat it as casually as we treat a pair of skis or a tennis racket, he can keep his hold on us. Prayer has become a dead ritual. Prayer has become a dead sport. Something that we do out of habit or routine. But where's the power? I mean, let's be honest with ourselves. How do our prayer times go? It's these dead rituals. These things we do for one minute before a two hour prayer or two hour business meeting. It's this awkward thing we do in a circle right before we play a bunch of songs. It's contained, it's domesticated, it's detached from who we're praying to. Why have our prayer lives become like this? Why have they become so weak? First part of Hebrews eleven six 6 gives us some critical insight. It says anyone who comes to him must believe what? That he exists. Now the author of Hebrews knew who he was writing to, This could seem almost rhetorical, but was it? Do we believe that God exists? Because I think a lot of us say we do, but we function like atheists. It's my approach. It's my wisdom. These are my resources. This is my time. It's my plan. It's about how I'm going to get it done. This isn't about words. This is about how in the deepest part of us we live It's about what we believe in the deepest part of us to be true. How do things really happen? Why are things really fruitful? Why does anything really matter? Do we believe that God exists? You know, one thing I know for certain is all of us, we all need to see God more clearly. So who is he? As if I could describe him with words. But the way I pray, the way I have to pray is I got to walk and I got to talk out loud. That's probably not a shock looking at me now, but I'm a sit still kind of guy. And so I'll be outside, you know, and I've had the privilege of going to some beautiful places. Like I said, I lived in New Zealand. And I'll see this incredible beauty. You know, and then as an artist, as someone who makes content all the time, videos, podcasts, I write, I make music. I know how hard it is to create something, certainly something of quality. The, just the hours of brainstorming and revisions and draftings and edits and fixes, and when it's all said and done, it's pretty average, honestly. But to think that God spoke everything that we see, all of the intricacy, all of the magnificence, all of the creativity, all of the wonder he spoke it effortlessly into existence He just spoke it into existence. Do we believe in this God? Or I'll be on tour with no longer music in some city I've never heard of. Four hundred thousand people I'll be looking out of the window and I'll become overwhelmed. God, there's so many needs. There's so much there's so much to do. we could we could play shows for the next 200 years and we wouldn't make a dent. This is overwhelming. There's too much to do. There's too much brokenness. There's too much evil. And yet God knows every single person by name. He is not overwhelmed. He hears them when they pray, when they cry. He knows what's on their hearts. Do we believe in this God? If we would understand who God really is, if we would really understand who God really is, and then we would hear or read something like God will reward you, not maybe, not sometimes. He will reward you if you seek him with an earnest heart. Would this not change everything? Would this not revolutionize the way we pray? You see, how you view God has a direct impact on how you pray. The theologian A.W. Tozer wrote this. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to this question? What comes into your mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. What you think of when you think of God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about you. And I'm not talking about sort of a superficial understanding. I'm talking about deep down, what you really believe God to be, who he really is. Because if God deep down is far away, if he's incapable, if he doesn't care, if he's indifferent, then why would you pray? Then prayer does become a dead ritual. Prayer does become a nice cute cliche before meals. But if we would have just a glimpse of who God really is, then we would recognize that prayer is all we have. It's our only hope. It's our only strategy. It's our only resort. When we don't understand who God is, then we're always bound by what's not possible. We're always seeing the limitations, the obstacles, the things in our way. We're always looking to human solutions. But it's not about you. It's not about what you have or do not have. It's almost as if we look at the story of the five loaves and two fish and we think that the point is, okay, this is what we've got to work with. Hmm, how can we best maximize this, multiply it? How can we divide it up carefully and use it well? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story is you do not have enough. I do not have enough. Not even close. Close. In fact, what I have to offer Jesus is so little compared to what is needed that it is only because he multiplies it that I feed the masses. It is only because I offer what little I have to him and that he puts his power into it that I'm able to feed the masses abundantly. It's not about us, but we need to see God for who he really is because if we would, I believe we would begin to seek him desperately. So what does it look like? What does desperate prayer look like? I keep saying this, I keep saying this. What does it look like? Well, Jesus illustrates this in Luke eleven, five 5 through 9. He says this. Then Jesus said to them, suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine has come on a journey and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside says, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you because of the friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. This is an amazing parable. I mean, put yourself into this context, right? So it's midnight. Now, in those times, you went to bed when it was dark. There was no electricity. So really, this is more like three in the morning for us. But I think the point Jesus is trying to make here is this is a really bad time. This is a very, very inconvenient time. So put yourself in that spot. It's the worst possible time, the least convenient time possible. And you hear a knock on the door. Now, initially, you're thinking, okay, well, this this can't be good, right? No one would bug me at the least convenient time possible unless it was serious. So you, 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 you rush out of bed and you, you open the door and it's your neighbor. Now he probably has a reputation, but initially you're still alarmed, right? He, okay, could be serious. And you ask him what, what's going on? Well, it's kind of embarrassing, but you know, I had a buddy come in out of town and I don't have any food. Can I, can you help me out? Now, I think if, when I came to my senses, when I recognized what was being asked of me, I think I probably would slam the door in his face. But the neighbor is more reasonable. He's, he's more willing to negotiate. So he says, can you come back in the morning? I mean, come on. I got my kids in bed. But this neighbor's a punk, and he's going to get what he came for. He says, no, give me bread. And it says not because of their friendship, because I'd imagine that ended precisely at that moment. It says because of his shameless audacity, or my translation, his ridiculous boldness. He was given everything that he asked for. Now, of course, this is hyperbole, but this is how Jesus wants us to pray. And here's the thing: I always read myself into the story like I'm the one being bothered. Uh, uh-uh. I'm the crazy neighbor. You're the crazy neighbor. That's who Jesus wants you to be, a little bit unhinged, a little unreasonable. Jesus wants to hear you pray in this way, and I want to highlight two things to close here. Two aspects of desperate prayer. The first is desperate prayer is unreasonable prayer. Look, I know God wants to hear every detail of your life. You know, and he cares that there's going to be good weather for your nephew's wedding And, you know, he knows that you could maybe need new tires and it would be nice if you got over that cold or whatever. He knows. He cares, truly. But would it not bring God some glory to start praying for some unreasonable things? Where are the unreasonable prayers? Where are the bread at midnight prayers? The prayers that only God can answer. God wants us to have faith, and yet I feel like so few of us ever put put ourselves in a position that requires it. We don't need God. We've got our security systems and our fences and our four hundred one ks. We don't need God. We never put ourselves in positions that require any faith. We never ask for anything where God needs to show up. Why not ask for some unreasonable things? It's like this: you get a phone call. It's Bill Gates. That's weird. You answer it. Hey, Bill, what's up? Ben, this is really weird, uh, but I just felt overwhelmingly like I needed to give you anything you asked of me. Just anything. No limits. Honestly, just ask, and I'll give it to you. Wow, Bill. That's so generous. Um, Well, I'm a little short on my rent this month. uh, So maybe you could, like, give me a couple hundred bucks or... You know, my, my car could use some new tires. That would be nice. What? If billionaire Bill Gates calls me and says, I'll give you whatever you want, I'm asking for half. Right? We could like, I don't know what he's worth now, but 10 billion is just fine. I can live on that. Or if I start to feel a little guilty, I'll be a good Christian about it and just say, tithe to me, Bill. 10%, I can do that. Silly illustration, but the point is this. God... The possessor of all wisdom, all power, all knowledge, all resources, creator of everything is saying to you, what do you want me to do in your life? What do you want me to do through your life? And we're asking for rent money. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. And we're asking for rent money. And I think it would bring God some glory to ask for some incredible things. God use me to reach a million people. Why not? Use me to start a whole new Jesus movement. Why not? Why not me? I want you to use me to reach every unsaved person in my family, and I want to do it this year. And I'm not going to stop praying until it happens. Why do we not ask for some unreasonable things and let God work? Some bread at midnight kind of prayers. The second aspect of desperate prayer is it's persistent. I love that the neighbor doesn't give up. He goes so far on the limb, he's not going to leave till he gets what he came for. And some of you, you may have prayed some of these unreasonable prayers. There were some breakthroughs you needed to see. There were some dreams that God gave you, and they didn't come quickly, or they didn't come through, and you grew tired, and you gave up. You, you grew cynical, like, okay, I get how this Christian things wor- thing works now. I'll reduce my expectations. And I think God would say to you, don't give up. Ask me, seek me, and don't give up. Be like the widow before the unjust judge. Give me justice. Give me justice. God wants to do extraordinary things through this church. He wants to do extraordinary things through your life. And it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what stage you're at. It doesn't matter what gifts you have or do not have. It's not about your approach. It's not about your strategy. It's not about your limitations or how full your schedule is. God can use you, but we have to start seeking him with a desperate heart. We have to stop making prayer a dead ritual. It should be all we do. It should be all I do. I've seen so many examples of God doing extraordinary things when we pray. Let me just close with one. We were on tour with No Longer Music, and we were supposed to go to Croatia. And uh, the whole thing fell apart, and we were frustrated. You know, we, we're, we're a big operation, 25 people, five vehicles, tons of equipment. It's not easy. We, we plan our tours a year in advance. And so we were frustrated because we didn't come that far. We didn't have that much invested in us to just sit there. So we started to pray some unreasonable bread at midnight prayers, And this crazy, faith-filled Albanian pastor came to mind. His name is Sabri, and we called him up. We said, Sabri, we would love to tour Albania. And he said, okay, when? And I said, we said, next week. He said, okay, I'm on vacation with my family in Italy, but we'll pack up the car, we'll meet you there. So we loaded up 20 people, five vehicles, we drove over a thousand miles to Albania with no planning. No preparation, no promotion. We played 12 shows in 10 days for 13,000 Albanians during Ramadan and hundreds of people came to Jesus because God rewards those who seek him with a desperate heart. This isn't for, norm, this isn't for extraordinary people. My, I am as ordinary as it gets, but God rewards those who seek him with a desperate heart. Jesus, I thank you that though the problems are great, you are far greater. And I thank you that this church has everything it needs to revolutionize this city, this state, this country for you. And I pray against the lie that gets us to minimize and downplay and put off prayer when You have given us a a powerful weapon. I pray that this church would pray like it's never prayed before, Lord. And I know there are prayer warriors in this church, and you hear them. May you produce in us all a renewed desperation in seeking you, that you might use us to reach a world that has fallen apart. Thank you that this is not a message of condemnation, but of of challenge, of hope. This is a call to not waste your life living an ordinary, boring Christian life, which none of us are called to. So use us in Jesus' name. Amen.